You're listening to Parenting Our Future with certified parent coach, Robin McMahon, author of The Yelling Cure and founder of Parenting for Connection. My podcast is all about providing you with the tools and solutions you need in your parenting so you can create the family you always wanted. Hi parents, it's Robin McMahon here. Just before you dive into this episode, I want to invite you to join my new membership site for free. My site, which is at www.parent-toolbox.com, is the companion to my award-winning podcast where you will find game-changing tools and resources from me and from my expert guests who are among the top leaders in the parenting world. Join for free today at www.parent-toolbox.com. Now back to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Parenting Our Future. It's Robin here and... I want to start off by saying my name is Robin McMahon and I am a picky eater. And I know that so many of you have kids who are picky eaters too. And thank goodness we have Heidi Miller here today because we're going to talk all about what picky eating is all about. I would talk a little bit about myself and why I'm a picky eater and how embarrassed I am about it still to this day as a grown-up woman. Um, Let me first introduce you to Heidi Miller. So Heidi is a speech and language pathologist. She's a feeding specialist and certified oral facial myologist. I don't know what that is. Can't wait to ask you. Um, And she works with children from really zero to 18. And she works with their families to just help them improve their speech and feeding skills. Heidi has a specific interest in people like me, picky eaters. And she (laughs) recently wrote and published the HMS feeding therapy protocol for expanding repertoire of picky eaters and, and, uh, and children with ARFID. A-R-F-I-D. So I can't wait to find out what that is about too. And other speech therapists and occupational therapists um, treat this population. So thank you so much for being here, Heidi. I know that you know that I am a picky eater. So what the heck? Why are kids picky? What is this whole thing about? What is it all about? Thank you so much for having me. There are so many reasons why children and adults alike are picky eaters. Um, And my job is to be the detective in all of that. So sometimes kids come to me very, very young as a picky eater, because I do a variety of things like the little, little ones that have trouble latching and um, Mm. bottle feeding, but let's not go there right now. Let's talk about the kids that really just don't expand their variety, their variety. They won't eat full food groups. Um, they won't eat, you know, they'll only eat this kind of chicken nugget. They don't like to go to restaurants. They don't, we're going there. So a lot of times when kids will come into my office for that, I will do a very thorough assessment and I have to look at a couple of things. Is there a physiological thing that is stopping them from eating? A lot of times something like that won't go detected because families tend to just think, you know, my kid's being difficult. Like they just don't want to be eat because there are so many picky eaters out there. Um, it happens to be a population that's exponentially growing and there's a lot of attention and awareness on it. But eating is really challenging. It's a very, very difficult process. It requires 26 muscles and six cranial nerves working in harmony for a single swallow. And for some people, it just comes, but for others, it doesn't. And it's my job, like I said, to figure out what it is that's going on and where the breakdowns are. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I didn't know about all of that. <laughs> so those 26 muscles. And so, so what, let's talk about what could be the problem. So first and foremost, right. about a child who's refusing to eat either a specific food group or just like a very particular type of chicken nugget or whatever it is, right? What does that have to do with the muscles? So what could happen is when I do the assessment in their mouth, sometimes I'll discover something like a tongue tie where their tongue is physically, you know, and I'm sure you guys have heard of that, you know, where their tongue is physically pinned down to the bottom of their mouth um, or and, and a lot of times people are familiar with um, the anterior tongue tie, where if they stick it out, it's like heart shaped, you know, um, oh, yes. where, okay. But then there's also those posterior tongue ties. And if your tongue 
really doesn't have full adequate movement, you have trouble formulating what we call the bolus, which is like the food after it's sort of been chewed up a little bit. You're not able to make a good ball. You're not able to propel the food all the way back. You're not able to. So that could cause the kids discomfort. That's one thing. Another thing is to think about breathing and to think about like the anatomical structure. If a child has very, very big tonsils and they don't have like good sort of airway back there, like a good pharyngeal space, as we would call it, that could be very difficult because think about it. The kid is eating and then they have really big tonsils and they don't have a lot of air and then that causes them discomfort. This is something that can happen subconsciously. They don't know when they're three years old. Oh, I ate this. I'm going to swallow. Oh, I feel like I'm choking. I'm so uncomfortable. They just know that felt yuck. I'm not doing that again, you know? Mm. So it's our job as feeding therapists, speech language pathologists, to work these kinds of things out. So I'll look, and if I see something like that is enlarged, I'll make a referral to an ENT, and I'll ask them to take a look. Is this something that might be a contributing factor? Um, Sensory dysfunction. If you have a child that really has difficulty with sensory dysfunction, every time you take a bite of food, it changes. So think about that Mm -hmm. like a Right. So you take a bite, it changes. You take a bite, it changes. You take. So for kids that have difficulty with those kinds of changes, that could be upsetting. So there's a whole host of things that we look at that impact now. And then you have allergies. Sometimes there are allergies that went undetected. If somebody, you know, was having some kind of an allergic reaction that wasn't so unbelievably blatant and they were feeling discomfort then that's going to cause them to be uncomfortable. So we have to sort of assess all of these things. And what happens is if those things went undetected and the kids kind of felt uncomfortable, what do they have to turn to? They have their behaviors. They have refusal to eat. They have avoidance of going to the table. They have, you know, just sort of being quote unquote difficult. And they start to sort of eliminate the foods that make them feel yuck. And they put in the foods that they pertain, they think makes them feel safe. And, you know, we don't really know what the underlying reason was until we do our detective work. I don't believe that kids are, are picky just to be difficult to their parents. I believe that it always started somewhere, but then what happens is the anxiety because now the kids have gone so long and then the anxiety, yeah. And the anxiety grows on top. Well, and they're, they're freaked, freaked out, out and we're freaked out. Everybody's freaked out. And then the anxiety grows. And then we have to untangle those patterns in a way that feels very safe to the children, very safe to the parents. And we have to really do it in a, a safe, safe way. So it, the way that I do my therapy, when I do speech, the kids come in, the parents are out. It's, you know, and then I do a communication book. When I, my approach that I developed the parents or one of the people, a caregiver, a a family member, an adult guardian, somebody must be in the room with us because we are a team. We work as a unit. Okay. So I want, that's so great. And there's so much about what you said that I want to go back to, because I want to, what really stood out for me, uh, and this is something that I hear a lot, right? Is kids running away from the table and refusing to eat, right? So really running away from the table. And um, and so let's talk about that for a minute. So that is really, for lack of a better word, and this is a question, not a statement, just so you know, it, yes. it sounds to me like, like a trauma response almost, right? Yes. Like I gotta get away from there. So if your child is doing that, you need to say, hold on a second, right? Not necessarily to your kid, but to the situation. Right. Whoa, why are they doing this? What am I missing? Or could it be something else? Right? Like there could be more than one thing, right? Certainly. So my advice there, my advice there would be, um, I think that that family eating time is very, very important. And I recognize busy lives, busy family. I'm a mother of three and I work a lot and, you know, you can't always get that, but no, as long as you are not, as the parent, you are giving the food exposures 
you're presenting the food exposures, but you're not forcing the child. There should never, ever, ever be any forcing of eating, ever. The children make the decision as to how much they're eating and what they're putting in their bodies. It's our responsibility as parents to present variety, to offer, you know, to offer what they're, what's going to be there. If you have a child that really is a true problem feeder, until you seek the intervention, you're offering your child those safe foods. You're trying to change, you're trying to change that up as much as you can. But I would suggest um, as a tip right now, you have to stay at the table. You don't have to necessarily eat the food. I'm presenting you with the foods that feel safe to you, even though you still see the family salad in the middle of the table and you still see your brother's broccoli. But this is family time. You're sitting here with your siblings or you're sitting here with mommy or daddy or mommy, whoever else. And, you know, and you're not bombarding your child with, you know, like you have to eat five more bites. You have, that's their choice. You're talking about the day. You're talking about what's coming up in the week. You're, you know, you're using it as a social time. And even if you have to start in small increments of, you know, we're sitting at the table for five minutes, we're moving it up to 10, we're moving it up to 15. The expectation and the rule is that the child stays at the table. As long as the family, the, the guardians are not coercing the child to be eating because that's going to take the stress away. The reason why they're avoiding the table most likely is because there could be an underlying feeding problem and stress there, and they don't want to be coerced to eat. Does that make sense? Until there's intervention or help. Yeah. Okay. So you said a lot, and this is all so good. So what you're saying is, okay, so we're going to protect family time at dinner time, right? So we're protecting this time and we're saying you have to sit at the table, whether you eat or not. That's not the issue. This is just a place for us to gather together and sit together. And, and it's some, some kid, like some kids are really little though. Like what about a two-year-old, right? That so look, we set different expectations for the yeah. two-year-old. Like let's, you know, maybe we make it five minutes, you know? Um, but also the key factor there is actually protecting that stressed child. That child has to learn over time that they're not going to be forced to eat they're not going to be told, you know what, like you must have, you know, your five pieces of whatever, you know, and they're not going to be told like no dessert unless you eat this much. And they're going to learn that that time at the table is enjoyable. That's what our goal is. Our goal isn't necessarily having them at their table. Our goal is having them pair an enjoyable experience with meal time. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I still have many questions. So what okay. you're saying is you're building trust. We're building trust. Trust around, is key yes. around feeding. Yes. And, and around the ritual of the dinner table, right? Meal, of any meal, but yes, the dinner table, okay. most importantly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I feel like most of the time that's when we're all eating together, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You're right. Yeah. Building trust around meal times. Okay. Right. And I just had a conversation with a client yesterday where she said, you know what, my husband gets home late and I eat at eight and the siblings eat together. And I said, well, then, you know, if your home is a pain, I said, then be sure that because she said the siblings actually don't even eat together, like they eat disjointed. And I said, if you can't commit to a family meal, I understand that because we have to recognize the lives of different families and how busy people's schedules are please at least try to have the siblings eat together, like have the boys eat together. They're three and five. And if you can sit with them, I would like, that would be great. And I recognize that you're not going to sit a full 30 minutes because that's unrealistic. You know I mean? But try to sit the 15 minutes. And honestly, if you could eat a couple of cucumbers or if you could eat like an appetizer, I get not wanting to eat two meals because I wouldn't want to do that. But that mirror modeling for the kids is tremendous. So, you know, I mean, that's a really big piece also, but I recognize that that doesn't always work. Right. Okay. Uh, so, so that's good. So, so we're doing it slowly. We're building this trust, but the, the key is that we are presenting them with food, variety of food, and we're supposed to not care if they eat or not. Okay. So that's very tricky. That piece is very tricky. Like really? Yeah. The key, I know. So the key to that is 
in the beginning, until we really get them into intervention and until it like for the kids that are really problematic, you know, we need to be exposing them to a lot, exposing them to the variety. There's a tremendous amount of research that when they're young, especially the more variety they're exposed to, the, the greater the chances of them sort of incorporating that into their daily ritual or into their diet. So that is definitely something, you know, the increased exposure is going to lead to them hopefully wanting to adding that to their repertoire. But you want to also be providing them with foods that they feel safe with and then sort of varying the properties of those foods. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saying um, you're, you're offering and showing them all sorts of different kinds of foods and you are including foods that you know that they can eat and that they exactly. will tolerate. Exactly. So if that's applesauce, that's applesauce at dinner. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Okay. For sure. So, just so not applesauce, mean, but not applesauce every night at dinner. You know, you have to sort of rotate right. through the things that they do yeah. like. And mm -hmm. look, and if you're eating the broccoli, like, oh, you know, mommy's eating the broccoli, it's crunchy and it's crunchy the same way your apples are crunchy. You know, you can share the properties of the food to try to help them know what's to come, you know, and you can certainly put them. I love ramekins, you know, for me, like, you know, the portions also people tend to like for the little kids, they fill these big plates with these huge portions. It's very overwhelming. You give them a little ramekin and, you know, it allows for them to feel a little bit safe. And then you can have that on the side, you know, where it's, you know, mommy gave you a little broccoli, do with it what you want. You know, it doesn't, it's there. It would be great, you know, if you wanted to kiss it or lick it or nibble it, but do it's your choice what you put in your belly. Yeah, and we're going to talk about all of the kissing and the nibbling. <laughs> oh, that, that sounded weird just off the cuff like that, but we're going to explain that because you have a really great tool for us to help to encourage your kids to try new foods. Maybe I should have been kissing more fruit uh, as a child. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So, okay. Um, now, we're not forcing our kids to eat. We are going to give them some smaller portions, uh, right? Like in the ramekins, like you said. So we're making this a really- Of the newer foods, right. Of the new, oh, of the newer foods. Okay, got you. Um, now, how do you feel about making more than one meal for- I just, I'm stuck on dinner. I just want, I'm, I'm thinking dinner. Dinner but is tough. Yeah, like how do, I, how do I make a beautiful stir fry and a peanut butter sandwich for the one kid? You know what I mean? Right. Like, do I do that? Should I? So it's, look, I mean, every situation is different. Something like a stir fry, that's actually an excellent example because I feel like for something like a stir fry, you can make the stir fry for the family, but you can take sort of that chicken um, and kind of that same chicken, mm -hmm. leave a little bit out and maybe just sort of pan fry it. So it's, do you know, like the kids are eating similar, but what feels safe to them? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, that's different. another reason why I like almost like a fajita night or like a taco night where it's everything is sort of separated and then everybody can make it to their liking. Does that oh, make yeah, sense? That's my jam right there. Yeah. That's, yes. That's where what, the kids, yeah. where there's choices for the kids, where everybody's eating the same thing, but they're making their own choices into it. Now, if your child only eats, and everybody is allowed choices too. I mean, we're human, you know, like right. if they, if your kids eat 60% of the main meals that you're serving and then they don't like the salmon or they don't like that, then that's, that's typical. I mean, that happens, you know, but if you are making the stir fry and you know, absolutely not, there's no way that they're going to do the stir fry. Do they do rice? You know, like rice goes with stir fry. And if you know that they're going to eat a little bit of the rice and the rice is going to be on the family table, then I think that every therapist would have their own idea. But if the child is going to sit at the table, be exposed to all of the stir fry, eat the rice with the rest of the family and half of a peanut butter sandwich with like a little bit of chicken that would have been on the side from the, I mean, to me, then that would make sense. But the goal would be to get them from to the stir fry. But I think that we sort of work towards that in increments. So this is where those beliefs come in or those the fears come in from parents and they say, well, my, you know, I can't just let him or her eat peanut butter and rice. Right. And, and I know you're not saying that this is an everyday meal and I know that, but 
It's the fear that they're not getting enough nutrition, enough vitamins. Um, and it's the fear of the future too, right? Will you be obese? Will you be too skinny? Will you have an eating disorder, right? I mean, we go to the extremes in our minds when we're just sitting in front of a stir fry, <laughs> you know, it means so much more than just the food in front of us. So how do you address those parents that are so worried about nutrition and then the future of what this could mean later on? Look, I do want to specify that I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist. So that is something that's, you know, important to keep in mind. And that is why feeding is so complex, because we do work with collaborative teams of nutritionists and psychologists and feeding specialists. And, you know, in order to compare, in order to increase that repertoire and teach these kids how to feel safe with something like the stir fry. Look, stir fry, you're dealing with like 8 million different things between the chicken and the different vegetables and the sauce. Like that's a that's tough, but not to say it can't be done. It certainly could be accomplished, but you know, um, I think it's, it's a balance. I, it's a balance. I mean, you, and I think that the world is the oyster and we always can, you know, climb all the mountains that our kids have unbelievable potential. But I think also our expectations have to be reasonable, you know, and I also do say to parents a lot, I have a lot of parents that will call me and they'll feel guilty. You know, there's a lot of guilt there. Like my Mm -hmm. child just won't eat and I don't understand. And it must be because I worked or it must be because I didn't give them enough fruit when I was, when they were little, or it must be because this happened and I freaked out and I'm like, this is nothing you did. Do you have another child? And very often they'll say, yes, they, they have an older brother. Well, what happened to the older brother? Did they, do they eat? And the parent will say, oh, Tommy, he'll eat everything. And I'll say, Tommy eats everything. They were raised in the same house. This is nothing that you did, you know, but you do mm-hmm. have to reset your expectations and you do have to sort of meet your child where they're at. Like you said before, that trust piece is critical. Mm-hmm. You have to gain the trust. You have to sort of relax the atmosphere. You have to build that connection. And then you have to start to work together. And you have to recognize that you're, you know, you're not going to necessarily get to those huge, big complex. I mean, you can, but, you know, you have to work together. Ask your child, you know, what's a food that might make them feel safe. Ask your child where would they want to start and then build on that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Really, what, what but I think, I think what, what I think we want to say too is that, you know, for one, look, we control the food in our home, right? Yes, we and do. I know you're saying you're not a, you're not a dietitian, and I, and I totally respect that. But we control the food that's in our home. We control the food that's being offered, right? Yes, they go to birthday parties and they do things like pop or have cake or whatever. But for the most part, we control that. And we also have to remember that our kids get their nutrition in 24 hours, not just in one meal, right? And I just happen to know because the way busy families are these days, it's usually dinner time that they're together, breakfast, they're usually running around, right? Mm-hmm. Lunchtime, kids are at school or at daycare or wherever, right? So it's this dinner time that I know that I've really heard a lot of stress around, right? And yes. they're just worried about getting nutrition. Um, and I just say, look, it's okay. It's temporary. You're right. right? And care less about it because our kids have counter will. And when they feel manipulated or they feel forced, that counter will also kicks in regardless of the physiology uh, that they may have and the, and the difficulties that they may, that they may be experiencing. Right. Yes. And Robin, you made an excellent point because I wouldn't even say 24 hours. I would actually say like a three or four day cycle. I would even go as far as to say a week. Um, I don't think we well, I don't think we can say 24 hours. I feel like even as adults, you know, some days we're, some days we're not hungry and other days we're starving. And we, so mm. I think that you do have to look at a couple of days at a time. And for the smaller kids, they say we should be feeding the smaller kids every two to three hours, three hours. And their snack should almost resemble mini meals. So, you know, let's mm-hmm. say for the kids that aren't allergic to peanut butter, you know, a couple small peanut butter crackers with, you know, half a banana, and it almost is a mini meal. And so some of those kids also who have, who just don't take in a lot of, um, they just 
their, the amount that they eat smaller, come home from school and offer them, you know, the yogurt with the half of apple with a couple of crackers or, you know, a couple of cheese crackers with, because then at dinner, you are a little less stressed. They had a little bit more of a satiating snack. Um, and I recognize for some of the picky eaters that they don't, you know, they don't eat all of those things, but of the things that they eat that you feel like are a little bit more healthy, build in some, now look, you, you can't, I'm not saying graze all day. This is not what I'm saying. I'm saying on a structured schedule, on a structured schedule, offer them these things because I don't want there to be so much pressure around dinner. There shouldn't be so much pressure around dinner, but you're right. And also I'm not saying only give your picky eaters the things they want. Please don't misunderstand. I, as parents, we do need to, you know, offer Ellen Satter. I actually just put this up on my Instagram, did a division of mealtime responsibilities. And she said that the parents are responsible for what the food is offered on the plate, when the meals are scheduled at the kitchen and where the meals take place. And the children are offered are responsible for whether they send the food to their belly and how much they send the food to their belly. So these are kind of the parameters that we work around. Mm. Okay. That's really cool. Okay. I love it. And, uh, and smart snacks. Love that idea. Love that idea. So you can just like, feel like, Oh, it's okay. They got, they got this. It's fine. And sometimes, you know, um, even, even when you're preparing the meal, you can feed them a little, like a little sugar snap pea or a little, you know, piece of right. carrot. Not or, right before, not right before. Cause you really? want them to not right before. Right. But what well, if they don't want even cut and you want to eat and you want, you want that you want to wait and have it at the table. What do you mean? If they don't eat it cooked, but they eat it raw, then yeah. I would save some raw. And then yeah. some of the family is eating it cooked and they're eating it raw. I mean, that's a great adaptation. So they don't have to be eating exactly what the rest of the family is eating. Like uh-huh. I would then take out a, like a, a, a back to my ramekins. Yeah. I would take out a couple of those here and take out a couple of those there and they're still eating the same food. It's just, they enjoy it raw and this one enjoys it cooked. And that's like one person puts ketchup on their fries and the other person doesn't like, or one person puts dressing on their salad and the other person likes it with just vinegar. I like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. No, I like that. So, um, okay. So I want to ask you some rapid fire questions here because these are the things that I, that I have heard before. So what do you think if you have a child who's slightly older, let's say four or five, I don't know, throwing out, I'm just throwing that age out there and they want you to feed them. I just had this conversation. That's so funny. That could be a function of a couple of different things. Um, so first and foremost, not, do you do it? Do you do it or no? Well, I think that it. I think that it depends. If the if it, it's a it's a very very loaded question because if there is it's a very loaded question because if there is some kind of you know failure to I don't want to say failure to thrive but if the doctor is at all concerned about the child's weight gain, if the doctor is at all concerned about the child's, you know, getting enough nourishment or whatever, and the child is really only going to eat by the parent sort of assisting or helping out, then I would say do it for partial. But I guess I would go back to our initial conversation, which is why is the child doing that? Is the child doing that because they don't like the way that the food feels? Is it a sensory thing? Because in that situation, very often you can almost wrap a napkin around the bottom of the food and then the child doesn't have to touch the food and they will feed themselves. Mm -hmm. Is it a motor planning kind of problem, an OT sort of problem where they can't, Mm -hmm. you know, figure out how to do the stabbing on. And so it's easier and it's easier if the parent does it. So, you know, it's, you sort of have to untangle those things. Um, and I feel like then we're sort of building in compromise. You know what? Like we can alternate bites or mommy will yeah. do half and then you do the other half. I don't think you can ever really all or none with kids. And if it's going to be them eating or not eating, then you have to really sort of work it out and to figure out why is it that the child needs, why is it that the child is requiring so much assistance? Yeah. And you do say, like I say too, that, you know, the behaviors that you're seeing, there's a reason for them all. There's always, always. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so how do you feel um, about devices at the table, about um, oh. having iPads at the table? Never. Please. Please. But it happens. It doesn't. I'll tell you why. Because okay. those children are desensitized. Look, if you have a child that is a healthy, good eater, and it's Saturday night, and you're taking a date night, or, you're, or it's a crazy busy, then sure. Once in a while, anything goes. And like the kids have a whatever. On a regular basis, please do not have your children eating in front of devices. First of all, the smaller children, this is just not safe. It's really, it's just not safe because, you know, you're starting to really increase the textures that they're eating. They have to be focused on their eating. Um, and that's the first thing. But the second thing is it, they are numbing themselves. They are desensitizing themselves to the feeding process. Feeding is difficult and we want them to be part of the process. We want them to enjoy the food. We want them to learn that, oh, this is crunchy. Oh, when I eat this, it melts in my mouth easily and I can swallow it. Oh, this I really need to chew a lot before I swallow. And they cannot do that if they are numbed in front of a video and they are just mindlessly eating. It also isn't good for satiation patterns. You know, you know, like you're watching a movie and before you know it, the entire bag of chips is gone. This is a horrible pattern and this should not happen. Now, if you have a really picky eater and you are super struggling and you need to like sit with a book, I don't love it, but that's a little bit of a better option. But eating with an iPad or eating in front of the television, terrible for normal routine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the problem with it too, is that you get in habit of doing it and it's such a tough one to break. That's the problem too, right? Uh, you know, then you're fighting now over sitting at the table, having the food and the iPad, right? And it's not a good, and and, and it also, it, 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 it costs you connection. You know, what about the connection? I was just going to say that it costs you connection and it really sets you up for poor social skills down the line too. I mean, I have three children and they're older now. I have a 16 year old, a 14 year old and a 10 year old. And when we do have the opportunity to sit down as a family for dinner, which we really do try to do except for the weekends, because they're older now and they go out we dock our, we dock our phones. And sometimes my husband has to remind me to dock my phone because I'm <laughs> so busy with work and I, and he's like, your phone gets docked. We are not allowed to bring phones to the dinner table. And I actually, my last one is a challenging eater. My older two are great eaters, but my youngest is, she's tricky. And, you know, she would love nothing else, but then to have her phone at the table, but it is, that's just a, it's a bad habit. Yeah. Okay, um, so why is it so important that we eat together? Why are you saying just that, that families eating together is so important? Can we not just connect in other ways? Why does it have to be at the dinner table or whatever table? You know what I'm saying? I keep saying dinner table. Right, <laughs> right. But it should, but right. I, do, I think having a place to eat is kind of nice. Look, I've, I recognize that it's difficult. I do want to say that. And I recognize that it can't happen all the time. So the reason why, especially for the children that have challenges with eating that it's helpful is because we've learned, especially with the younger kids, that the mirror modeling of eating actually helps them eat. So when I'm doing feeding therapy with the younger kids, um, I actually, pre-COVID, I mean, now it's much harder, but I would eat what they were eating and I would have them look at my mouth. So that the mirror modeling, I mean, humans do so much of that. So your children actually watching you eat um, and having that model or watching their sibling eat or watching a babysitter eat. Um, I used to insist, you know, when I was working, we had au pairs and I would say to my au pair, you know what, my husband and I are going to eat later because I don't get in until eight. My kids were younger at the time and they needed to eat closer to six. And I would say, kindly sit down and have your dinner with them because I wanted an older model, peer model sitting that mirror modeling is very helpful. That's the first thing. The second thing is it allows us, like I was saying before, to 
turn that mealtime into a less stressful time, especially if we are not sort of doing that badgering with eating. And, um, and feeding is social. It is a social thing. It is what people do when they come together collectively. And so being a picky eater at times can be, for some of the clients that I see who are so, so rigid, it can be ostracizing at times. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it can be. Some of these little kids who, you know, they go to the birthday party and they can't eat the pizza. And then when they get older and it's time for a sleepover and they're so stressed, they don't know what, what are we going to, what am I going to do? They're going to bring in food. I can't have the food. I mean, it's really, and then as they become more independent and their friends are going to go to a restaurant and what, I don't, I'm not going to be able to have anything at that restaurant. I have a couple of kids on my caseload now that are going to college in the fall and they're seeing me because they need to be able to eat independently and their parents are just as stressed as they are. So that piece of family eating has just so many benefits. Also the family style, because back to that like lick nibble visual kind of part that we were talking about, any form of interaction with the food is helpful. So if you have a child that let's say doesn't want to eat the broccoli, even just saying, can you pass the bowl to your brother? Can you serve me a little bit on this on my plate? That helps them. Any form of interaction helps to sort of break down that anxiety, helps to break down those sort of sensory barriers. So that's another reason why the family meal is helpful because it increases their exposure and those exposure increases can lead to the repertoire expansion. Okay. Well, you pretty much described me when you were talking about the older children, uh, birthday parties and then sleepovers and then college and then all this stuff and restaurants and friends. And there, there is nothing more anxiety provoking for me than somebody asking us over to their house for dinner. I'm just like, oh no, I have to tell them about the way I eat. And then people but like everybody who knows me knows it. And I do not make a big deal out of it because it is embarrassing to me that I eat like a little kid. Like I like cheese pizza. I like, uh, if I'm going to have a cheeseburger, it's ketchup only. Um, I, you know, don't use sauces or salad dressing or any of that stuff. And I do not eat fruit. The idea to me, (laughs) and I'm just outing myself here. The idea of a strawberry is so gross to me. <laughs> with Still hair, to this day. With the hair. With and the, the seeds. And then the, the juice, gross. Same yes. with like a raspberry, like little pockets of like little juicy bits and the hair and seeds. I just cannot even for a second. And I do remember a time when my mom and my sister were like, eat the fruit, eat the fruit, eat the fruit, like sitting over me. It felt like they were sitting over me. Um, and I, I hate to say it. It's almost a little bit like a phobia. Like I just, uh, not a little bit. Oh, it is at this point. (laughs) Not, I'm sorry. I just had to say it because it's true by this point now. Anything here. So let's just say it. Yeah. By this point now it is. And that's really? what happens. Yeah, of course. I mean, you've got like, this is now a long time. It's, a long time. it's very, it's a long time. And it's very, very scary. And it's very well, overwhelming. I lie about it. Like we'll, we'll be at like a fancy gala dinner or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll be doing something and uh, I'll ask the server, you know, uh, is there going to be fruit on the dessert plate? Uh, can I have it without fruit? And sometimes they just give me a plate of fruit. So I'm like, no, 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 I'm at the opposite of that, right? Like even just the little like decoration of fruit, I can't even do that. I won't. I'll reject the whole thing if if uh, if it's there or eat around it. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. And fruit is so sweet. It's so interesting. Well, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, let, let, we don't need to dwell on me, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I get it. I get that, you know. But what's interesting, Robin, is that I think that a lot of people feel like she'll never be an adult and not eat fruit. Like people think that that is the most unheard of thing. Well, there's a couple of us out out there. I've met a few of us. I'm not the only one. I'm sure you have. I'm sure. No, you're definitely not. 
Yeah. You're definitely yeah. not. Well, and you were going to ask me about my kids and whether or not they eat yeah, fruit. Yeah. So what, so do your kids eat fruit? They do. They do. Cause they I do. just pushed my husband in front of me and hid behind him. And uh, I'm like, watch dad, watch dad eat. See, look at dad eating. You know, I kind of instinctively knew that they needed to see us eating fruit. And I would just say, oh, no, you know, not right now or whatever. They didn't know that I didn't eat fruit until they were well, teenagers, which they are now. So, yeah. And you eat vegetables. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So funny because vegetables are so much harder than fruit typically. Uh, there are certain fruits that are easier. Like I understand the strawberries. Sometimes, a lot of times parents, you know, because like I said, it's collaborative. They'll come in and they'll say, well, what about this? Like I, raspberries, I would never let people go to. I actually had a client that wanted strawberries. I'm like, if we're going to do strawberries, we're going to cut off the stem. We're going to cut off the seeds. We're going to start with the middle because it is a little bit stressful. There are certain things that are scarier than others, but something like an apple, if you cut off the skin and if you slice it really thin, almost like a matchstick, I would say, like, or a French fry shape, but thin, that's like pulpy. And that is very similar to like yeah. a cauliflower consistency. Like that, I think you'd be able to do much I, easier I wish, than a strawberry. I wish my mom knew you because I can totally see those strategies would have worked. I absolutely could have, but you know, I have really tried to work through some of this too. Like even a cucumber, I couldn't eat that jelly middle, right. With the seeds right. and stuff, but I can now, uh, we started to do juicing and I would put apples in there. Um, but it was mostly vegetable, um, with lemon, right. Lemon to me, lemon, I'm not scared of lemon <laughs> scared. So that's oh excellent. That's silly. Um, yeah. No, it's and, not and of silly. course, doesn't love a lime margarita uh, or some right. lemonade, right? That's easy to love. But yeah, so um, so that's so interesting because I never would have thought of pulling it apart and just taking some of the more easier the pieces to- that feel safe. Like sometimes people will be like, oh, I don't understand why he won't eat an orange. I'm like, you don't understand why you won't eat an orange. An orange is so difficult with the white stuff and the membranes and the shooting out. And the, I'm like, we're not doing oranges anytime soon. You have to like think through all those sensory pieces and the experiences for the kids and then kind of work it out with them. You know, I'm always very protective of the kids when we do like, I like to start with mandarin oranges and the parents are like mandarin oranges, but I'm like, I rinse it out. I, I said, but it's a good segue because it yeah. doesn't have all the membranes and it doesn't have all the, and they know what to expect, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My son, actually, it's so funny. One son will eat oranges, but the other son won't. And so, you know, those orange slices at soccer, uh, which are just such a mess when kids just eat them. Yes, oh but my I gosh. love those. Yeah. My, my son wouldn't. So I'd bring grapes for him. He'd have grapes and that would right. be all. But okay, what we want to talk about now, though, it's really important is the tool that you have for us, which is how to introduce a new food. So can you walk us through those steps? Certainly. So the way that I when I'm in therapy, like I said, my goal is to always have the children feeling safe. And when I say children, I say all ages. Um, And so we work together at figuring out what foods are going to work for them. And we do it very incrementally. Kay Toomey is a psychologist and she has a program called SOS. She breaks down the steps very, very, very micro, like a lot of micro steps. So I do it in a different kind of way where my steps aren't quite as micro. You know, and like I was saying before, any level of interaction, mixing, cutting. But if we go over here, first I have the holding it. Then I have the child kissing the food. Then I will have the child actually licking the food. And then I will have the child bite into the food, but not eat it. And what this allows them to do is feel how the food is going to feel in the mouth without the stress. And as soon as I say to them, we're not eating it, do not eat it. I don't want you to eat it. It relaxes them enough to be able to explore it. And then we will do a nibble. And when I say a nibble, I mean a teeny tiny bite just for them to be able to feel the way that it feels, chew it and swallow it. And then we go to a couple nibbles and eventually eating the food. So by breaking it into manageable steps, it allows them to feel safe. I sometimes also will use like, I use a million different techniques, but you know, I'll have them put it on, um, 
I'm sorry for the crinkling. <laughs> the light not open. Um, but I'll put it on like one of these like neon cocktail stirrers, you know, um, okay. where I can turn it into a lollipop for those kids that don't like to hold things or don't like to. So now they're not even dealing with holding the food. They're just sort of kissing it and licking it. And it, it helps a little bit or a fork uh, for the older kids. This is good for the little kids. The older kids, obviously I don't do this, but we're toothpicks, you know, and it just allows them to in very small incremental ways, explore the foods. You work with 40 something year olds? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Oh my gosh. I can try, Robin. I can try. No, uh, it's okay. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm not interested. Oh, I'm going to start emailing you. Have you tried the strawberry? <laughs> oh my gosh. That is so great. Well, thank you for that. So that is, so the tool that you've given us is that, is that to hold it, to, um, to kiss it, to lick it, bite it, and then nibble it. And so I mean, you that, can put it right up in your kitchen. I mean, for yeah. the little kids, you could put it up like in your kitchen and kind of work through it with them. But the point is that's how you introduce a new food to your child, but you do it with no pressure. You do it step-by-step. Step. Like, let's just try you. You're holding it. That's great. Right. Maybe that's all you can do today. Absolutely. Yes? Can you kiss it for me? Can you lick it like a lollipop? Great job. Incremental steps. If you read them and you see that was super duper easy. Wow. Like that was super duper easy for you. Do you want to try to give it a nibble like you want to try you know you sort of you have to read your kids and you have to read the safety if you see that they are like whoa then you pull it back yeah okay well this is this is great so um any last words as we wrap up here just to parents out there who are worried about the way their kids eat and how much nutrition they're getting and, you know, refusing food, you know, sort of the whole thing. Like, what is your best piece of advice for parents? Um, you know, why don't I just go over like what constitutes sort of a problem feeder? Because I feel like maybe that would be helpful. So if you have a child that really eats less than 20 foods, a child that leaves out an entire food group, a child that really stresses or tantrums, displays um, really difficult behaviors around mealtime, a child that will eliminate a food, that, like they have a couple foods, they eliminate a food, but then they don't add in a new food, mm. um, is only eating a certain kind of food, the certain brand, they will never, ever, ever change from that brand within their limited repertoire, or a child that always requires a completely different meal, shows aversion to being around all new foods, get that away from me, I can't have the food near me, I can't. These are reasons to make, obviously, if the child is gagging, vomiting, coughing when they're eating, you know, those could be really medical sort of reasons. But um, these are reasons to seek out professional health to okay. find a speech language pathologist that specializes in feeding, talk to your pediatrician, and know that, you know, growth, if your child is on the curve and growing, that does not equate to good feeding skills. So, you know, it is something to certainly watch out for. I have information at my Instagram, which is HMS Feeding and Speech. I always do feeding tips um, along with the speech tips. And, you know, we really just want to create positivity around feeding. You know, we want to have that safety around food. And mm -hmm. if you think that your child is displaying some of these picky eating tendencies, we should get to the bottom of it. There could be an underlying reason why your child is acting that way. And once we determine that, then we can start to untangle it and help them learn to eat in a way that feels safe to them. And once we do that, it helps the whole family. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll just add my two cents in because as an adult, you know, I think it's worth the time and effort for you to put into your child because, um, ridiculous. I don't eat fruit. 
it's ridiculous. Like there's no, like, I wish that I did. It would be so much easier and um, it would just open up my whole, you know, repertoire for what I eat and what I like. And yeah, you know what, you don't want to, you don't want to be like me and be scared to try new things. You really don't. So um, yeah. Yeah. And that anxiety tree, it grows. I mean, anxiety sadly works that way. It gets bigger and bigger. And so you know, if we can sort of nip it and change those habits in a way that feels safe to the kids, it's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So people can find you at um, HeidiMillerSpeech.com. And um, you're also, if people want to work with you, you are licensed in New Jersey, New York, Florida, and Maryland. So if people do want to work with you, which I think they should, if they have mm -hmm. any trouble, um, I also will get those, uh, that list of problems, sort of red flags. If your child does this, you should seek help. So I'll get those from you. We'll put those in the show notes too, just to help parents really understand what's going on. And, and I Certainly. think the most important thing is let's not stress just remember there is help out there if your child needs it and you are the model for your kids. Show them that, you know, eating is okay. Just take the pressure off yourself. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Yes, absolutely. And lastly, I have that protocol that if somebody is working with a speech therapist, a feeding therapist, or an occupational therapist, their therapist can purchase that protocol, um, which really teaches my method on how to help these children. Oh, that's fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Heidi. Thank, thank you. you for all of this. I know so many parents are either doing a sigh of relief or going, okay, I got to go find a speech and language pathologist who specializes in feeding. So that's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I loved being here. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon, and if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe, and if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace.